How are we doing today, church? Doing good? Um, you have your sermon notes with you today? I want to jump in. Uh, we have a handful of things to cover. So if you don't have your sermon notes, you can raise your hand and someone will bring someone to you. We have a handful of things to get to and I want to make sure that we have the time to do it. So thank you if you've got some hands back. And uh, so please give them some. They will. Keep your hand up until you get it. And uh, we'll jump in today. We've been in a series called The Jesus I Never Knew. And this is, of course, all about the parts of Jesus that people don't always like to talk about. And so today, that's what we get to cover. And I titled the message today, What Jesus Hates. And I will tell you, uh, it might get a little uncomfortable in the room. How many of you know that when God speaks, oftentimes it causes you to get a little uncomfortable? Anybody ever been pushed in a situation by God and it was a little uncomfortable? That didn't feel good. We're being molded and shaped. And so um, I believe that sometimes when God speaks, it's, it can get uncomfortable. But he has a word that he wants to share with us, and I believe that. So I've heard many sermons on Jesus in my life, and I will say I rarely hear uh, teaching on the hate of Jesus. In fact, a lot of you right now, you think Jesus hates. No, he doesn't. He loves. Well, I'll show you some scripture, and then you can determine what you want to determine, all right? One of the reasons that maybe we don't like to talk about this part of Jesus is because of this, and I'll put it up or the production team will put it up. When we talk about the character of Jesus, this is at the top of your notes, it is more often in line with what we want him to be rather than who he really is. I'll let that sink in for just a minute. Who you want him to be versus who he really is. We like to fit him in our nice little box. Sweet baby Jesus, right? All right, that was a quote of a movie, some of you. We do. Look up pictures of Jesus, and you'll see this kind of oftentimes very uh, kind of thinner, you know, smile on his face, cute little children around him, very delicate. You know, that Jesus, I don't know, sometimes. Other times, he's got fire in his eyes. Mm. He's got a blade coming out of his tongue. I want to talk about a side of Jesus that matters, that we understand it, and I'll show you why it is. Before I go further, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, because as I prepared for this, there was a moment I put my head on my desk, and I said, who am I? Who am I to deliver such a message as this? In fact, I asked God, please, I don't want to preach this. I was so tempted to not preach it because it'd be so much easier not to. And then the Lord reminded me of Jonah and the prophet Jeremiah and others who were called to give hard sermons that people were going to ignore but they were called to do it, and they did, even though they knew others wouldn't listen. I do pray you listen today. And I say this wholeheartedly. I am not here to please you. I'm here to please him. So would you pray with me? 
And if you want, pray for me. Lord, I need your help. We want to know your word. And we rely on your Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us. And we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. The challenge today is to look at the true biblical description of Jesus, who had the ability to hate and his actual practice of that hatred. It might seem like a contradiction that a God who is love can also hate. Yet that's exactly what Scripture says is true. 1 John 4.8 Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Most would not debate with me right now that God is love. But let me read to you another text as well from the same book. Hosea 9.15 reads, Because of all their wickedness in Gagal, I hated them there. Because of their sinful deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will no longer Love them. All their leaders are rebellious. I know what you're thinking. That's Old Testament, though. I'm not done yet. You doing okay? Did anyone just get a little uncomfortable when you just read the scripture that says, I will no longer love them? I know, challenging, hold on, we're not done yet. Here's a key truth that we know throughout scripture. God is love and God hates. God's nature is love. He always does what is best for others. He hates what is contrary to his nature. He hates what is contrary to love and truth. I want you to think for a moment. If you grew up with an alcoholic parent, chances are you might say, I hate alcohol. I hate what it does to a family. Or maybe you see a friend or a coworker, someone you love and care for. And you hate to see them drown themselves in alcohol. There's that hate inside of you for many things. Someone's treated a certain way. You hate it. Can't stomach it. I understand that hate is a strong word. So how can we understand God's hate? I want to help you understand God's hate. When we say God's hate, God hates, what are we talking about? Psalm 5, verses 5 through 6 will make you get really uncomfortable. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. (sighs) 
The arrogant cannot stand in your presence, and you hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detests. Psalm 711. God is an honest judge, and he's angry with the wicked every day. All through scripture, you will find stories of God's hate, his wrath, and his anger. Write this in, doing my best to teach this to the best of my ability. And can I just tell you now, I know I will be judged more strictly. So when I teach this to you, I teach with absolute understanding that I'm going to have to answer to him for what I say to you here. So I have prayed endlessly and asked him to be with me as I tell you this. And I believe he is. He's a loving God. He does not leave me nor abandon me. Amen? He does not. Psalm 711. I want you to write this in your notes. His hate is not emotional, it's judicial. Did you see it? God is an honest judge. His hate is not emotional. It might be better to say not as emotional as much as it is judicial. God cannot tolerate sin in his presence because he is holy. It's part of his character. Luke wrote this speaking of the return of Christ in heaven. Revelation 21 reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they will be their God. He will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 7 goes on to say, those who are victorious will inherit all of this. I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consumed to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Woo! <laughs> Just glad you showed up today. You're like, this is not what happened last week. You know, when you read God's word and you have a relationship with the Lord, I found this is what it's like. You just discover more about him and learn about him and it'll challenge you and push you and mold you and shape you. 
His hate is infinite disapproval. Why do I say that to you? Because Revelation 21 just showed you. When I just read to you Psalm 5, these are wicked people who he cannot stand. He hates these evildoers. Revelation 21 speaks of those people. These are the people who are the evildoers. And Revelation 21 speaks of infinite disapproval. They will never get his approval. They remain hated. Jesus will never approve that which is contrary to his character. Those who reject Jesus are prohibited from entering the new Jerusalem for eternity. Fearful of what the world may say or think, they reject Christ. That's why he calls them cowards. Because you will not stand for Christ. And instead, you put your hope in yourself or in some other worldly system or false ideal or idol. And so he says, you live in fear. Fear of what? Fear of what others may say, others may think. So you rejected Christ. And so you stay in a constant state of disapproval for all eternity, never to be approved by God. And cast into a fiery lake of burning sulfur for all eternity. Now here's why this matters to understand what Jesus hates. Because the more, write this in, we understand God's hate, the more we understand his love. What? I know. Bear with me. If we don't understand that God finds us hateful in our sin, we won't be as stunned by what his love has done for us. That's actually incredible. When you consider that he hates, but then he loves so perfectly. So what does Jesus hate? Proverbs 6, many of you have read this before. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Did you see what I just read? These are people. What? He hates people? No. No, it can't be. Go study the Hebrew, and you know what you will find? It's people. I know. I know. I know. So I did what you did. I said, that can't be. How could you hate people? You're Jesus. 
You don't hate. You love. So much of me wants to believe that, right? So I did what you're doing maybe. I was like, well, hate doesn't mean hate. Someone broke that wrong. And I did what I always do. I'm like, let me go back as far as I can to find the meaning of this word. Well, certainly the Hebrew doesn't say hate. Some English writer got that wrong. So I went to look up the Hebrew word, hoping to find any possible definition other than hate. And I came up empty. The Hebrew word gave one definition, hate. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, what are the people going to think about this? This can't be. But over and over and over again, I find it's just hate. <sighs> Jesus hates that which is evil. No problem there. And people who are evil. <sighs> I know. God hates lying. Yes, that's true. But lying doesn't exist on its own. Because lying involves a person. So the lie is in the person who chooses to lie. So God cannot judge the lie without also judging the liar. So how does Jesus practice this hatred then? How does this play out? Stay with me. Don't jump ship just yet. It gets really good. Four ways, and maybe not the only ways, but four ways are found in Scripture that Jesus practiced his hatred. Mark 11 reads, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of the selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry the merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is not written, my house should be called the house of... Uh, it says, it, it is not written, my house should be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a dinner robbers. His house is a house of prayer. You've turned it into something else. Fast teaching here on that. The temple had four different places with four different groups. Certain people were allowed in. Certain people weren't allowed in. The outermost courts had Gentiles, and some courts were for women. Then you had the courts of the priests, and then you had the holies of holies, where God's presence was. And essentially what these money changers were doing was making profit, ultimately making money off of the people that were coming in to get their animal sacrifices, charging them high interest rates, and ultimately making it difficult for people to enter into his presence. Number one, he confronted those who denied access to him. Comes in flipping over the tables. How does he respond to this hatred? He confronts those who denied access to him, who made it difficult for people to come to know him and his love. Couldn't stand it. Chances are you can't stand it either. He hates anything that makes it difficult for people to come to know him. 
Number two, he corrected those who taught self-righteousness. How did he respond to this hate? He corrected those who taught self-righteousness. Matthew 23, 15 reads, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Do you like to be called a hypocrite by Jesus? Not me, right? You travel over land and see to win a single convert. Look at you. You travel all over the world trying to get people to come to know me, God, right? And when you have succeeded, <laughs> look at the text. You make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. What? Jesus doesn't talk that way. I'm just reading what Matthew wrote, Matthew 23. What's he saying there? Why is he saying that? These are courageous, energetic messengers of faith. The problem was the message was one of self-righteousness. What is self-righteousness? If you have a little note at the bottom, you should write this down so you know what it is. Self-righteousness is a refusal to acknowledge your sin. You are self-righteous. You make yourself righteous. It's a refusal to acknowledge your own sin. We gain God's approval on our own. That's what self-righteousness teaches. The reason he calls them a child of hell is because they were rejecting God's provision for salvation and depending on their own works. They couldn't stand it. Mark 7, verse 5 says, So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? In other words, why don't they wash their hands? We've heard this story, maybe some of you. Your disciples don't even wash their hands. Obviously, they're not real disciples. Jesus responds back from Moses, said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin. Corbin means that which is devoted to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. What are they doing? They're putting tradition ahead of Scripture. Pharisees could declare a material possession Corbin, that is, devoted to God. The rule meant that at any point they could choose to be selfish and do what they wanted with their money and ignore the needs of their parents. They say, oh, no, that's Corbin. Sorry, Mom. Sorry, Dad. You don't get access to that. that that's set aside for God. Really, to protect their own money because they were being selfish. He goes on to talk to these religious teachers who would teach us the thing is self-righteousness. Romans 3.20 reads, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So works alone don't save us. Only grace does that. But works do accompany saving grace. Charles Spurgeon said, The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Number three, how does he respond to this hatred? How does it carried out? Number three, he chastens those who mislead children. Matthew 18 says at the time his disciples, notice his audience as his own followers, come to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to him. He 
takes a child, puts him in his lap as an illustration. He says, he placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter into the, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And then verse 6. This is where it gets a little messy. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better to have them hang a large millstone around their neck and be drowned to the depths of the sea. Well, that was a beautiful picture, wasn't it? Anybody wake up in the morning and just like to read Matthew chapter 18, verse 6? Chances are you don't have a lot of devotional books that tell you that one. Right? See, this is a form of capital punishment in Jesus' day. He's teaching his own followers. Oftentimes, in other stories, you'll see it in the text where his disciples are trying to keep the kids away from Jesus, and Jesus says, let the kids come. Why is that? Because kids were not allowed to become students of the rabbi until a certain age. It was a way of saying, this is not important right now. And Jesus also says that we've got to come like little children. What's he saying? I have found that as we get older, we tend to allow theological debates to get in the way of our childlike faith. Be careful of this. Don't ever allow knowledge to replace the truth. Did you hear what I said? Don't ever get to the place where you allow knowledge to replace truth. But adults do that all the time. We do. We're saved only by his death and resurrection and nothing else. Number four, how does he carry out this hatred? He goes to the cross for sinners. He is not afraid to confront those who teach self-righteousness. He's not afraid to have conversations and chastise and discipline those who mislead children. Don't you mislead a child. If you're a parent, that should feel heavy. If you're a teacher of the word of God, that should feel heavy. Don't you do that to my children. And he confronts people, no problem, who make it hard for people to come to know who he is, who he really is. And he goes to the cross for sinners. Isaiah 53 Isaiah, the prophet, says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Listen to these words, these adjectives. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And we all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
Question. Does God hate sinners? Does God love sinners? I know the statement that you've heard, that God doesn't hate sinners. He just hates the sin, right? Wrong. That implies that sin is separate from people. Do I need to go back and read Psalm 5 again? You want to read Psalm 11, verse 5? Go ahead, try it out. Enjoy it. It's an infinite state of disapproval by their own choice. You want to know what he does to sinners? Look at Isaiah 53. Demoralizes them, punish them, inflicts wounds. Does he hate sinners? Does he love sinners? Yes. Yes to both. Look at Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, these are people, the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. If I do anything today, I'm going to make you go home and restudy your Bible. I'm sure of that. You're like, I'm going to go home and look this up. Go. Look. He hates the sinner. But he loves the sinner. How can this be? I'll show you in just a minute. Look at Hebrews, New Testament, 1, 8 through 9. This is all about Jesus, the Son. But about the Son, he says, he's quoting Psalm 45, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. How can God hate sinners and love sinners at the same time? And the answer is the cross. Look at the cross. The cross is a reminder of both his love and his anger towards the sinner. You may not like this particular individual, but I think he does fairly well in some of his understanding of God's word. And in John Piper writes this, just reading his words. It is not just... It is just not true to give the impression that God does not hate sinners by saying that he loves the sinner and hates the sin. He does hate sinners. His wrath is real. It is not something that he pours out on people he approves of. He infinitely disapproves of them. Sin is not sinful except as committed by sinful hearts. Sin doesn't just hang out there with its own existence. It's in the hearts or it's in nothing. Sin does not suffer in hell. Sinners suffer in hell. I wonder what people who make the misleading statement about believe about hell because he is not punishing sin in hell. He's punishing sinners in hell. In his love for all, God has sent his son to be the savior. The wicked who are still unforgiven, God hates. Remember, hate is judicial. It's infinite disapproval. That is why it's important to understand that God desires the wicked to repent of their sin, to change the way they think, and find refuge in Christ. 
So I decided to do something to help make this as applicable as I possibly can for you today. And I have two chairs. We'll call one the mercy seat, and we'll call one the hated seat, a judgment seat, a mercy seat, and a judgment seat. Let's talk about eternal approval and eternal disapproval. Received in Christ, refuge in Christ, refusing Christ. So, if we sit in a state of constant disapproval and we choose to stay in our sin, God will stand in judgment on us. We stand in judgment before him. He does not come to condemn us. We stand condemned already is what the text says. In fact, we condemn ourselves because we stay here and we become dependent on our own self-righteousness. And we stay in our sin. But God who loves so much, I mean, just wrap your head. I told you why this matters so much is when you understand God's hate, you understand the depth of his love. But God who loves at the very same time Perfectly. He comes down, Romans 5 8, and he puts the he puts his son in the place of a sinner. And Jesus takes the place of sinner. I know a lot of times we talk about, well, he he took the sin. He didn't just take the sin and just nail it to a cross as if sin is its own thing. He took your lying, he took your stealing, he took your cheating, he took your whatever. He he just took it up there. He became it. He became the sinner. And did you see what God does to sinners? Did you see what God does to Jesus, his own son? His will was to cause him to suffer. Why? Because he loves the person that sits in this chair and he waits over here and he says, I wait for you to come here so that you don't have to live in a constant, infinite state of disapproval. You will now be approved by me. So I stand at the door, the front porch, waiting for the one that was dead to come alive. That's what the prodigal son story is about. I wait. I love the sinner. And I hate the sinner. It's a beautiful picture of amazing. Wrap your head around. Just look at the cross. It's God. It doesn't just stay. I hate you. No. He loves you way too much to do that. Instead, he comes to take the place of a sinner. And the wrath of God is poured out on him. And he takes it. And scripture says that he remembers the sins no more. How could that be? 
Because he's chosen to remember your sins no more. Who? All people? No. Those who have placed their righteousness in Christ. Those who choose to trust Christ, Romans 21, Revelation 21. Those who, who follow, those who have overcome and been victorious. How are they victorious? How do they go from seat of judgment to seat of righteousness? Hated by God to loved by God. How does that happen? Because they put their hope in Christ and their sins are removed as far as from the east to the west and he remembers them no more. That is fantastic news. It's amazing. So what do you do about it as a follower of Jesus? What do we do about it? What do I do about it? Where do we go from here? Followers of Jesus hate what he hates. Hate what he hates. But it doesn't end there. (laughs) They respond to hate how he responds to hate. Now I want you to think about that because how he responds to hate is how. Don't you mislead this, children. I confront false teaching. I will have the conversation even if it's not pretty. I will defend my children. Don't mislead them. He's not afraid to have the tough conversation. And he does not make it hard for people who don't know him to come to know him. Don't do that to people. Followers of Jesus hate what he hates and respond to hate the way that he responded to hate. How did he respond to hate? He laid down his life for them. He didn't bash them and beat them over the head with just lots of empty words. No, he came down to wash their feet. That's how he calls us to love our enemies and love those who hate you. The cross. It's a picture of God's love and mercy and grace and it's a picture of his hate against sinners. I'll invite the team up. I've never preached such a quiet sermon in my life. I did youth ministry for so many years and done this now, and I was like, you were the quietest I've ever heard you. Please do not take what I have spoken today out of context. Please do not. Pastor Ricky said that God hates people. No, I said that he hates sinners, and don't you dare, don't do this to me, and I'm telling you, don't you dare stop the sentence there. I didn't say God hates sinners. I said God hates sinners and loves sinners. It's both. And he loves them so much that he put himself on a cross and be spit and hit and bruised 
can't stand it. He can't stand sin and what it does and how it destroys. And he can't stand sin and how it destroys your life and it destroys the world. He can't stand it. He's got so much compassion, splachnizima. He's got so much compassion in his gut that he's got to come down and do something about it. Christians don't stand on a corner and scream hate. They hate it so they get involved and do something about it. And they speak up even when it's not easy and they tell them the truth even when it hurts. Followers of Jesus hate what he hates and they respond the way he responded. He loves you way too much to let you stay in your sin. Too many Christians today have kept quiet about the sins of their closest family members. Gotta speak up. Gotta let them know God hates you. No, God loves you. Sin is a big deal. The wages of sin is death. But God has overcome it. You don't have to stay there. You can be moved to an infinite state of approval, declared righteous and holy. I'd like to invite the prayer team down front. As they're coming, I'll tell you a quick story. A man owned a uh, Rolls Royce, heard a story. Bought a Rolls Royce, really expensive. And, uh, Drives it around, supposed to never break down. Drives it around, breaks down on him, calls Rolls Royce. And um, Rolls Royce says, we're so sorry, sir. We'll fly a mechanic out to you to fix your vehicle. Guy's like, what? You know, fly a mechanic, you know, to where I am, middle of nowhere, you know. So they fly a mechanic out to fix this Rolls Royce. It's a pretty wealthy man, obviously. Guy comes down, mechanic, fix the car, flies back off. Guy drives away. A couple weeks later, he's like, where's my bill? I'm, I'm, you know, I got money. This happened. You guys fixed my car, but I haven't got a bill yet. And Rolls-Royce said, I don't know what bill you're talking about. That's how Jesus views your sin. When you move from sin to righteous, sinner to holy. I don't know what sin you're talking about. When you understand the depth of his hate, you understand the depth of his love. It is so good. Luke 18, I won't read it. I'll tell you, it's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And I invite you to come down and be prayed with today if you want to give your life to Christ, surrender to him, move from a seat of disapproval to a move of approval. It's not by your own merit. It will never be. It's only through the cross and the grace of Christ that we come to know who he is, acknowledging our sin before him. And if today you want to come, acknowledge your sin. I just want to acknowledge my sin before him. Me first. I tell you now, I was a sinner saved by God. Grace, and I am only righteous 
because of what Christ has done in my life. I am not saved by my own works. I am saved by the work of the cross. Two men, as scripture said, two men came down front. One man came down. Jesus tells the story, Luke 18. He says, what we're so tempted to what we're so tempted to say to people who are sinners. He comes down, he sees this man who's a sinner, very clearly a sinner. He's disgusting, he's filthy, talks that way, acts that way, hangs out, marches in those parades, whatever. And he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like that man. Thanks, God, I'm not like so-and-so. Thank you, God, I'm not like so-and-so and so-and-so. And then Jesus continues on. He says, another man came down. And he beat his chest. And he falls to his knees and he says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I don't dare look up at you. Who am I? And Jesus tells the story and he says, only one walked away justified before him. Which one do you think it was? Today you want to receive prayer today. We're here. Come confess your sin. Have one of our team members pray with you. Move from the seat disapproval to seat of approval. Jesus is your word. And even when it's hard, we receive it in love. Because you love us so much, you would go to a cross and die for our sins. Jesus, we love you. In your name. 